0: Hello everyone, today we are continuing the Torch Slayer series. I spent quite a bit of time on this case because I wanted to answer just one simple question. Was the Torch Slayer a serial killer? The basic definition of a serial killer is someone who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically following a predictive behavior pattern. Because of how things were handled, you'll probably never have heard of the Torch Slayer. And if you have, you only knew of his just one victim. But today, we continue to take a deep dive into this crazy story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Forgotten True Crime, the podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examined each crime independently of other people's opinions, and we search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and much, much more. No Wikipedia here, folks. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when we have new episodes. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. That's where we post a lot of the stories that we feature on this show. And we also have a Facebook and YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten True Crime. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we ended on a low note. Miss Margaret Brown's murder was not solved the man wanted for questioning for that murder mr lewis clement was found to have nothing to do with the murder he was a swindler not a killer so we find ourselves now just one year later the date is february 23rd 1929 this is just one year and five days to the date of Miss Brown's murder. James Boyle was a delivery driver for the Ward Baking Company. His shift started early and he went to work and he picked up his delivery of fresh baked goods and then he started making his deliveries throughout the morning. At about 5.30 in that morning, James was in Cranford, New Jersey. The roads were slick with snow, so James drove slowly to avoid any trouble. The road that he was driving down was considered pretty remote. There were few homes and businesses in the area, but it was also the most direct route to where he was going. Down the road, James could see something on fire. What was odd to James was that this fire, it was in the middle of the road. He didn't have a clue how it was burning like it was. The other thing that bothered James was there was just nobody in the area. There didn't appear to be any cars or people that might just explain what's happening. As James pulled up to the fire, he realized what it was at once. It was the body of a young woman lying in the middle of the road. She was on her stomach and the flames rose several feet. Without stopping, James drove to the Cranford Police Station to report what he had found. After confirming the report of the burning body, the officers contacted the Cranford, New Jersey Chief of Police, Mr. James Hennessy and also Sergeant Lawrence Burnell. As a side note, confirming James Hennessy's full name took a while. He was actually named Chief or Chief Hennessey in almost every report I could find. But I was able to locate his name in the 1929 copy of List of Members of the International Association of Chief of Police. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole just looking for this one name. What's actually pretty funny about this is after I found his name in this just obscure book that luckily had been scanned and put online, I found his name in a news report just moments after I found this. So if I would have just continued looking at news reports, I would have found it pretty quickly. But (laughs) as things are, it's it's all right. Chief Hennessy and Sergeant Burnell were already about to head into the station for the day, and instead they directed resources to start investigating this murder. When detectives arrived at the scene, they discovered a gruesome sight. A woman was face down in the cold, remote road. Her back was severely burned. It appeared that she was placed on the road face down and then simply lit on fire on the spot. Like the first murder, this woman did not show any signs of trying to protect herself from the flames. She must have been unconscious or already dead when set ablaze. When detectives turned over the woman's body, they discovered another gruesome clue. The woman's face had been beaten badly and it appeared that she had a gunshot wound as well to the top of the head. The woman's clothes were less damaged on this side. It was like they were protected by the road and actually stopped the fire from spreading to her front. The thing that detectives found when they moved the body was a partially burnt match. It was probably from a failed attempt to light the body on fire. The other thing they found quite odd was that the woman had lots and lots of jewelry. On her hand were three rings, two white gold diamond engagement rings and a imitation diamond ring as well. She also had on an imitation pearl necklace and bracelet. The woman appeared to be about 45 years old with graying blonde hair and blue eyes. She was about 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed about 155 pounds. Typically, when someone's killed for money, they also take things like the jewelry. This was a red flag for investigators and they believed that this was something for other than money. The woman's body was sent to be autopsied in hopes to find more clues on what was going on. Another delivery driver came forward as to have witnessed something. Henry Denver, who drives for the Hill Bread Company, had drove through this area about 30 minutes before John did, who was the other delivery driver. Henry stated that there was a car that was parked on the road. It was a blue coupe. A man was standing just outside the car, and a woman was in the car. Henry told detectives that the man was wearing a short sleeve shirt, and as he approached, he turned to Harry's vehicle and started waving him down. At first, Henry didn't think too much about this. Yes, it was in a secluded spot, but he felt that they were probably a couple who were trying to get some alone time in. But when the man started waving him down... Henry got out of there, he didn't stop and knew that it was even dangerous at this time of day to even consider it. Highwaymen were a common occurrence and there was no telling what these two had in store for him. You have to remember that this was leading up to the Great Depression. Not everyone in the country was doing well and things seemed to get harder and harder. Some of those who struggled turned to a life of crime, and highwaymen crimes were on the rise. This type of crime meant tricking or forcing someone to stop their vehicle. This typically happened in a remote area. They would then rob the passerby. Many times, these crimes ended in murder. One of the things that detectives decided to do was conduct a search in the area on and off the road. Officers were sent in all directions to see if there was anything that they could find. About a quarter of a mile down the road, officers found a man's hat and also a coat. It was about 10 feet from the road, Officers believe that they were tossed from a moving vehicle that was due to the location that they were lying and the area of road they were on. Although they were not 100% if this had any kind of link between these items and the murder, the detectives believe there was a good chance there was some kind of link. The victim's body was taken to the county physician, George M. Horay. The initial autopsy revealed that the woman's death was caused by a bullet that was first fired into the top of the skull, apparently when she was seated. The slug coursed down through her head and then pierced into her lung. It was lodged just behind a rib. The woman's face was then beaten in such a way to prevent identification. But one thing that the killer may not have known was that this woman had recent dental work done. A new bridge was at her mouth. And this suggested that there was a chance that they could make an identification through those means. There was no mistaking that the two murders of this unknown woman and that of Margaret Brown were very similar. They were crazy similar cases where the victims were both burned. They happened at the same time of year, just one year apart and in the same state. In both cases, a blue car was seen in the area. In both cases, it seemed that this was done for some other reason than just money In Margaret's case, the killer actually sent back the money that he had in his possession. In this case, the killer didn't even bother taking her jewelry. None of this is proof that the two cases were linked, but Chief Hennessy refused to publicly entertain the idea that these two cases were linked in any way. This was not a bad idea, seeing how Margaret's case was handled. Chief Hennessy was quite blunt with the press early on in this investigation. He told the media that this murder would not be solved unless they got pretty lucky. Days went by without an identification. Officers were answering calls about missing women all day. Many of the calls were from New York. This was probably because Margaret's murder was so heavily covered In that state each person described a missing person and they would compare it to a Jane Doe and then give that person the news that this was not their loved one the days became weeks and then even months there was little for detectives to do in this case but research what they had as clues the first thing they had was the victim's shoes. They worked hard to find out who had made them. Eventually, they traced them to a shoemaker in Pennsylvania. But that was as far as that clue had taken them. The hat that they found on the side of the road was traced to had been shipped and sold in New York. Again, this yielded no other clues. Meanwhile, there were two women in Pennsylvania, Miss Staub and Miss Dodds, who were very worried about their dear friend. Their friend had been traveling and was writing to them often, keeping them up to date on the drama that was going on in her life. But the letters stopped coming, and they immediately became worried about her. It wasn't until one of the two friends read the description of the woman found burned in New Jersey. The thing that stood out most to them was the clothing and rings. They were exactly the same type of thing that their friend always wore. They also knew about their friend's recent dental work. So, on April 10th, 1929, Miss Staub and Miss Dodds phoned the police in Cranford, New Jersey. They explained their theory and the officers checked Jane Doe and her belongings and found that they matched to what was being described to them. Detectives finally got a possible name for their Jane Doe. Miss Mildred Campbell. The two women also gave the detective the name of Miss Campbell's dentist. Officers arranged for transportation for the women to come to Cranford and identify the victim within a day or two. This would be a shocking sight. They kept the victim frozen to prevent her from decaying, and it was unsettling for anyone to see. Detectives also contacted the dentist. He was not hard to reach and he told the officers that he could quickly identify his work. He didn't mind coming down the next day. And he also said he would see if he could recognize this woman. Some of this leaked to the newspapers but didn't really see any press. This story had been rehashed over and over again at this point. There was just so little to go on. They didn't know if this was really going to yield any results or not. One thing that seemed quite different in this case from Margaret's case was that the newspapers didn't seem to have quite as many officers and officials leaking them information as before. The information that the press received from this case came from official press statements. This clamped the case down to a point where if the killer was keeping an eye on the news, this time they would not spook him in the hiding so quickly. The next day, Dr. H.C. Studervant, the dentist who came to identify the bridge work, arrived at the police station. They took him where they were keeping the victim, Within moments, he was not only able to identify the bridge work, but he positively identified the victim as Miss Mildred Campbell. Beyond that information, he had little to give the detectives. He didn't know Miss Campbell outside of being a long-term patient. Shortly thereafter, Miss Staub arrived at the police station, the first thing they did was have her formally identify the personal belongings of the victim. Each article of clothing and jewelry was identified as something her dear friend wore and owned. Then they brought her back and showed Miss Staub the victim. At once, she told the police that it was her dear friend, Miss Mildred Campbell. After the identification, detectives asked Ms. Staub if she could tell them a little bit more about Mildred and what was going on with her. Ms. Staub told the detectives that Mildred Campbell was her married name. She knew her better by Mildred Mowry. Mildred had not been so lucky in love. She was a nurse and lived her day-to-day life helping others but she was always lonely. So Mildred decided to do something about it. She was not the kind of person who would idly stand by and suffer. So since she was not having much luck in Greenville, Pennsylvania, she wrote to a matchmaking service based out of Detroit. This service would pair you with someone who they believed was similar to yourself. A 1920s version of eHarmony, if you will. Well, Mildred was paired with a doctor named Henry Colin Campbell. This was huge to detectives. You see, their flat-out refusal to compare this case to Miss Margaret Brown's murder was a way to keep them on track in case the two were not connected. They wanted to establish this murder first and then see if they could tie it to the other. In both cases, the victims were seeing a doctor. Ms. Staub told the detectives that her friend was able to meet Mr. Campbell, and they quickly fell in love. He was about 20 years her senior, but he promised an established life and a joint goal Both Mr. Campbell and Mildred were passionate about being medical professionals. Mr. Campbell told Mildred that he planned on opening a sanitarium in New York, where he planned on living. The two fell in love, and in August of 1928, they got married in Elkton, Maryland. Now... Mr. Campbell left their temporary home and told his new bride that he was heading to New York to get things ready and he was going to have their dream home built and start their new business. The months went by and there were many excuses to why Mildred could not come and see the progress that was being made. As each month went by... Mildred would grow more and more impatient. So by February of 1929, Mildred decided to go out by herself and find her husband. She wanted to see him willing or not. On February 1st, Mildred Campbell went on this adventure and never returned. Detectives zeroed in on Henry Colin Campbell as their primary suspect. Something that excited the detectives was that they were able to quickly find the registered residence of Henry Colin Campbell. He resided in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was just five miles away. (laughs) Detectives from Cranford started doing some research on Dr. Henry Colin Campbell. It turned out things were not as what they appeared with the good doctor. For one, he wasn't even a doctor. He was an engineer. Two plain-clothed detectives started tracking down where Mr. Campbell had lived. They visited a couple of previous residences, and they were directed to a new apartment he had actually just purchased. The apartment was in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was just a few minutes' drive from Cranford. When detectives knocked on the door, they were surprised that it was not Mr. Campbell who answered the door, but it was Mrs. Campbell. She told the detectives that her and her husband had been married for several years her name was Miss Rosalie McReady. She married Henry Colin Campbell in 1913, and they actually had the three children together. She told the detectives that her husband should be home later after returning from work. The detectives quickly excused themselves and started devising a plan. You see, they had actually spoke to several people that day while they were looking for Mr. Campbell. There was a genuine chance that this information might make its way back to him before he got home. So they decided it would be best to get as many police officers as possible, and they wanted to watch the apartment from all sides. Each officer placed themselves in or around the apartment building. They did not wear uniforms because they did not want to spook Mr. Campbell in case he was onto them. ...and knew that they may be on the lookout. That evening, a man arrived at the apartment building. It didn't seem... He didn't seem to be on the alert. But as he walked in, he headed towards Mr. Campbell's apartment. The detectives followed him closely behind. And before he was aware, he was stopped at his apartment... ...and was immediately confronted by the detectives... They asked if he was Mr. Campbell, and he said that he was, and then they arrested him on the spot. They searched Henry Campbell and found a loaded pistol on him. Almost at once, the man looked utterly defeated and broken. They quickly returned him to the station where they placed him in an interview room with mr campbell in custody detectives took this chance to search his home for any evidence when they entered they found his wife and three children in the home all of them were worried about henry nothing seemed to be out of place in all the common rooms however when they went into henry's room they found something interesting. Henry was an avid collector of teddy bears and kind of odd ones at that, some oddities or defects. He had many dolls throughout the room, and also he had very technical engineering books as well. Even though all of this was very bizarre to the detectives, it just meant that Henry Campbell was different. That's not a crime. Once detectives arrived at the station, it was within just a couple of hours, Henry Colin Campbell started confessing to the murder of Mildred Mowry. He started from the beginning and explained how he got to this point. You see, Henry Colin Campbell was an intelligent man. He became a civil engineer, which is no easy feat. When he was working, he was always doing pretty well for himself. He also went to school to become a medical doctor. But life seemed to get in the way and he never finished medical school. However, Henry started a medical clinic in his home at one point. He felt he was trained enough to help others and try to do just that until the state came in and shut him down. Henry told the detectives that he had fallen on hard times. He had hurt himself when he was younger, they put him on morphine, and he quickly became dependent on it. Over time, he needed larger and larger doses. He turned to hard drugs and put himself into financial ruin. He had just bought a new home and was struggling to make ends meet, so he began to come up with ways that he could make some quick money. He came up with a plan to find someone through a dating agency. He would trick them into falling in love with him. They would then get married, and he would steal their money. This mostly worked as planned for him when he met Mildred. She quickly fell in love with him. He told her exactly what she wanted to hear, and promised a future with him. From previous experience, Henry knew that if he were to take Mildred to another state to get married... They would not know that he was already married at the time. So they did just that. Once they did get married, they opened a joint bank account, and Mildred placed over $1,000 in it. Henry had drained that account quickly. Even so, Mildred didn't realize that she had been swindled. She didn't believe that Henry could have done such a thing. So when Mildred demanded to see him and told him that she was coming to find him, Henry arranged for them both to meet in hopes he could calm her down. But when they did, this just led to a confrontation where Mildred demanded to go to the home that he promised her. Henry could not do this because his house was where his family was. So that night they drove through town. Henry told the detectives that he confessed to Mildred what he had done, and he told her that he was struggling and was married. This enraged Mildred. She demanded that he take her to his house immediately. So he agreed. But in truth, this only confirms in Henry's mind what he must do. He had to get rid of Mildred. So they drove into the night. Mildred eventually fell asleep. They reached a long stretch of road where no one could hear them. Henry stopped the car. He climbed into the back seat and pressed a pistol to the back of Mildred's head. Before she woke up, he pulled the trigger. Mildred was instantly killed. Henry then pulled Mildred out of the car he siphoned gas from the tank and poured it all over Mildred. He lit her on fire and left her to be discovered in the middle of the road. The detectives asked Henry since he was cooperating if he would reenact the murder for them, so they left no stone unturned. Detectives told Henry that in doing so, it would show cooperation and would be favorable for him when he was charged and sentenced for the crime. So, seeing that he had no other option, Henry agreed. Before they did anything else, the detectives started asking about the Margaret Brown case. There were so many similar things here that there was a real chance that Henry was behind that as well. But Henry denied any involvement in that crime. He told the detectives that he didn't know her and that he had nothing to do with it even though the two crimes were so very similar. They questioned Henry about Margaret Brown's case for hours. They really, they just got nowhere. Detectives finally came to a conclusion that they had his confession on Mildred's case, and they had nothing that actually connected him to the other murder. And it seemed that he knew it. Right now, Henry would probably get life in prison for one murder. But if there were two murders, he would probably get the death penalty no matter what. So detectives went with what they could prove at this point. If they found anything that would connect Henry with the murder of Margaret Brown during the investigation, they would then pursue that at that time. The day after his arrest, police and prosecutors took Henry to the scene of the crime. Step by step, Henry calmly walked everyone through what he had done. Police even brought Henry's car to the scene so that he could show exactly how he crept out of the car, retrieved his pistol, and then shot Mildred Mowry through the top of her head. Miss Campbell was distraught about what was happening to her husband. She refused to believe the charges that were put against him, And when she was allowed to visit, she flat out asked if any of this was true. When Henry told her that it was, she broke down and cried, but she never left his side. Miss Campbell told her husband to fight the charges, get an attorney, and they could beat this together. Some of this seemed to get through because... It was then he had done just that. When he had counsel, Henry's attorney began working on an insanity plea. They planned on using Henry's many dolls at his home as proof that he was not all there in the head. It's worth noting here that at this time, we know of two marriages. Henry was married to Rosalia McCready, now Campbell, who he had three children with. He also married Mildred Mowry. It was during all this press of what was going on that an attorney stepped forward to tell of another wife he had married before Rosalia, which Henry never divorced. This wife sued him and won over $5,000 for his actions years earlier. It was also found out that in another state... He had swindled some other elderly women out of money by dating them and almost marrying them. As these facts about Henry Colin Campbell came out, it was also revealed that this man, who was now known to have gone by many different names, was not actually Henry Colin Campbell. He was actually born Henry Colin Close. This was something that Henry himself also confessed to. After this news came out, everyone seemed torn on how to address Henry. Uh, To make things easier for the podcast, we will continue to call him Henry Colin Campbell. This is where getting documents and materials became a little bit more complex. I had to do a lot of double research just to see if I could find him under multiple names. I was up to the task, though. When the news that Henry's actual last name was close, detectives were quick to link him to a sordid past. You see, when he was a younger man, Henry was out West trying to make it on his own. Through our investigation, we found that he made his way from New York to San Francisco somewhere around 1889. He took several letters of recommendations with him, and that assisted him with finding a job. When he arrived, he became a bookkeeper for Mr. Brohay. This is a man who made clothing in San Francisco. Henry handled his accounts and made orders for the business, but it didn't take long for Mr. Brohay to get an odd feeling about Henry, and he decided that it would be best to let him go. This caught Henry off guard, and he very quickly turned to a life of crime. He first contacted Mr. Brohay's clients and told them that if they paid him up front, he would do the same work that they were paying Mr. Bohe, but for half the price. He then took a check from one of the clients of his previous employer and cashed it at the bank. He forged his name on the check in order to cash it. He also stole several silk vests, which were worth quite a bit of money and pawned them for almost nothing he was arrested and sent to prison for forgery. Within a year, Henry's father was able to work out a deal. He was a principal of a prominent school in New York and was quite wealthy. He helped get his son a pardon from prison, and he quickly ushered Henry back to New York to keep an eye on him. Henry was now back into trouble, and this time he didn't have anyone coming to save him. Henry's defense was not to defend himself or his actions. As the trial came closer and closer, they had him examined by several different doctors in several different ways. They were trying to explain medically why he murdered Mildred. They wanted to show that this was something that was out of his control. He accepted that he had committed the crime but he thought this would be a way to not spend the rest of his life in prison. It was a risk, though. He was putting the decision in the hands of a jury who may or may not be receptive to these kinds of things. New Jersey was known at this time for its swift justice. They did not wait or waste anyone's time with the justice system. On June 10th, 1929, they began jury selection, and well, 20 minutes later, they had 12 men ready for the jury. This is the quickest I've ever seen a jury selected, and it doesn't honestly, not fair, (laughs) so just want to point that out. The next day the trial started... And it was a fight from the very beginning. The state first used Henry's own words against him to set the scene on how he treated the women in his life. No, they did not use a confession at this point. They used the letters that they found written to Mildred when she was alive. Many of the letters were loving and caring. Henry told Mildred that she would not come and stay with him in New York because he was building their house and he was not set up for her at the current time. But in reality, he was actually just living with his wife and kids. In later letters, he asked for things like money or jewelry. Mildred actually at one point sent him some diamond earrings, which he quickly pawned. They were worth thousands of dollars. Detectives knew this because he actually included it in one of the letters that he wrote to Mildred. In later letters, he was mean and forceful in telling Mildred that she would just have to wait because they were struggling and he needed to focus on getting this house built. The state was showing that Henry was planning on all of this all along, knowing that the eventual outcome might be mildred's own death at the end of the day the state did something that surprised many people they rested this meant that the next day would be henry's chance to present his case of insanity the state did not bring up any experts to testify against this at this point so really henry had free reign on this line of thought or well so they thought Henry Campbell spent a lot of time the next day on the stand. He told his side of things about getting into an argument with Mildred, how he lost his mind and killed her while she was sleeping. He was carefully led by his attorney through the entire story, so he said all of the right things. When it was the state's turn to follow up, They asked Henry if he remembered confessing to what had happened and writing a very detailed statement that did not state all of the things that he was now saying. Henry told them that he remembered writing the confession but could not remember putting all of the details down. In fact, he seemed to forget a lot of things because through further questioning, his typical answer was, I cannot remember. The next day on June 13th, 1929, the jury received the case and it took several hours for them to review everything. Just before 4 p.m., they came back with a verdict. They found Henry Colin Campbell guilty of murder. They also did not recommend sparing him from the death penalty. The judge's sentencing was death. Henry could not believe that this was the outcome. If he had just accepted it all and did not go with the trial, he could have worked out a deal of life in prison. Over the course of the next year, Henry Campbell fought and appealed the sentence, but it was rejected at every turn. He was also fighting for his life in another way his kidneys were failing and the state's medicine was not helping him very well. On April 18, 1930, Henry Colin Campbell was led into the death chamber at the New Jersey State Penitentiary. He was a shell of his former self. He could not stand on his own and was led to the chair, where he willingly sat down. As they strapped him down, the others who were to be put to death that night could be heard shouting goodbye, but Henry never responded or gave any last statements. His last request was that he be cremated. After strapping him down, the executioner then flipped the switch, and three minutes later, Henry Colin Campbell was dead. We will never know if Henry Colin Campbell really was a serial killer. Margaret Brown's death was still open, but considered by many as solved. There may have been other victims as well. This was something that proved to be easy for Henry to do. Mildred was swindled so well that it was hard to think this was the very first time Henry had done something like this. I spent a lot of time looking at unsolved murders of that time frame in that area, and I could not say one way or the other if Henry could have been responsible for those or not. But these are the facts in both Mildred's and Margaret's cases. Both happened in the same state, just a year apart. The two towns are not far from one another. Both were believed to be marrying a doctor, In both cases, a blue car was seen in the area. In both cases, the women were of similar age, killed and then doused in gas and set on fire. The murders happened late at night and both seemed to be done in such a way as to prevent the victim's identification. In both cases, the women were robbed of their money. Henry never confessed to killing Margaret Brown because I believe that if he did, there was no escaping the electric chair. Even still, all of the things that tie him to Mildred's case also tie him to Margaret's. So yes, I do believe that he was either a serial killer or the makings of one. What do you think? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you are the first to know. We also have a Facebook page Forgotten True Crime Oki Investigations Let me know what you think of the series. I'll see you all next time. See ya.